Well, it is good to be here with you all this morning. Um, Ryan and his family, uh, our lead pastor, are out on vacation, so be praying for them just for the rest and the relaxation they are, uh, I know they're getting. Um, And it also gives uh, us elders as well an opportunity to uh, get up here and to teach. Um, And it's just uh, a little nervous, but it'll be good. We're going to get through this. (laughs) Not something I get, it's one of the the things I have to do for work sometimes, get up and talk, and I don't get nervous, but... Being up here and handling the word of God, uh, it's, a, it's a very serious thing. And so, um, yeah, so we're going to look at the, Lord, uh, the word of the Lord here uh, this morning. Uh, one of the things uh, I love to do is watch movies and read stories uh, that make you think. Uh, you know, ethical dilemmas, philosophical questions, spy thrillers, uh, whodunits. Um, and a the theme of a lot of these kind of stories is that uh, there's a, typically a, a plot twist, Right? Uh, so the storyline is going along, uh, and then there's a significant change in that storyline that uh, changes your perspective on how the story is going or where it is going. And sometimes this plot twist is so extreme that it completely alters what you view as real, right? The true identity of somebody is revealed, or the true identity of something is revealed. Uh, maybe an alternate reality is discovered, or a true motive of, of someone or something was realized. Uh, through the first eight chapters of the book of Hebrews, where we've been studying, um, the author has been building up in an, uh, to and introducing kind of a plot twist in the lives of the Jewish Christians. Um, he's been hammering home a single point throughout these books. Christ is better. Christ is better. Christ is better. Christ is better than literally everything that the people of Israel have known throughout the Judaic system. So we've seen that Christ is better than angels in, in the verses, or chapters 1 and 2. We've seen that Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Joshua. Christ is superior to Aaron, who was the first uh, uh, high priest in the Levitical line. Um, Christ is better than Abraham, who was the father of the nation of Israel. Uh, Christ is better than Melchizedek in chapter 7. In the last two weeks... Uh, the real plot twist, the real, the real introduction of the new concept here, that Christ, as the better, perfect high priest, has instituted a completely new covenant. This is a better covenant that supersedes everything in the old, the first covenant, and it makes everything outdated or obsolete. Now, this is a major plot twist in the minds of the Jewish Christians at this time. Christ, uh, uh, as our high priest, changes how we relate to God. And it also changes how we view, how we worship, how God interacts with us. I think it is very difficult for us, modern Christians, living here today. Most of us, I think many of us, all of us, probably Gentiles, who have not had uh, this uh, upbringing uh, in our background, to fully understand how earth-shattering or life-changing, this conception of this new Christ uh, is. He is doing away with everything in the Old Covenant. He's doing away with the sacrifices. And all of this challenges everything they have known about how they worship and observe and approach and obey their Heavenly Father. So this morning, as we move into chapter 9, we're going to see the author of Hebrews now begin to move into how uh, he's going to prove his argument for uh, how the Old Covenant is inferior and the New Covenant is superior. 
So we'll see this uh, in the next couple chapters where he's going to compare the Old Covenant uh, with the New Covenant. Uh, This morning, we're going to focus primarily just on the beginning of chapter 9, the first 10 verses, where we're going to look at some of the limitations, the shortcomings, or even as he calls them in uh, Hebrews 8-7, the faults of the Old Covenant. And then over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at the superiority of the New Covenant, which we are living in under now. Uh, So let's read our passage for this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews 9. Uh, You can pull it up on your phone. If you need a Bible, there are some Bibles on the back uh, table as well. But I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hands. Please stand as we read uh, God's Word this morning. Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared... The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section only, the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I realize this is not quite big enough for me to have my big Bible up here open and my notes, so we'll have to figure out how this is going to work. Put it sideways here. We'll see if this works. All right. Uh, So before I think we dive in this morning, I'm going to lay a little bit of groundwork on what this first covenant mentioned in verse 1 is. I think this will, uh, as Gentiles, I think this will help us provide a little more background uh, for some of the content that is presented here uh, in Hebrews 9 this morning. Uh, So we know, uh, based on the context surrounding Hebrews 9, uh, referencing, you know, Hebrews 7, 8, and then what uh, he moves on to in 9 and 10, that this covenant is the covenant that God provided to his people at Mount Sinai. So if you have your Bibles, uh, flip back over to uh, Exodus 19, because I want you all to see this as well. And the context for Exodus 19, all right, so the Israelites uh, have been slaves in Egypt. Um, The Lord has miraculously freed them from slavery in Egypt. They have uh, freed, uh, they've they're gone out of Egypt. The Egyptians come after them. Uh, the Lord parts the Red Sea. The Israelites go through the Red Sea. Uh, the Egyptians chase them, and then the Red Sea comes down on top of them, destroys the Egyptian army. Uh, and then the people gathered uh, there on Mount Sinai, and the Lord has gone up uh, onto Mount Sinai to uh, be with the Lord. And uh, as Moses is on Mount Sinai, he gives Moses this first covenant that he gives the people of Israel. So if you read uh, Exodus 19.5, actually I'm going to start in verse 4. 
Uh, so you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses goes down and gives uh, the people uh, this word. Um, And uh, the idea that the God of the universe has chosen, has picked out uh, the people of Israel to be his, um, is a little (laughs) mind-blowing. We could probably take an entire sermon just to talk about uh, the covenant and uh, the Lord's choosing uh, people, but he wants you to be mine. I want to be with you, he says to the people of Israel. Uh, But there is a reciprocal requirement as part of this covenant, right? He's chosen them, but there's uh, also a reciprocal thing that the Israelites have to do in order to fulfill their part of this covenant, which is essentially like a, a legal agreement that binds two parties together. And part of it there is, observe all that I have commanded you. Now, a large portion of the rest of the Pentateuch, the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, uh, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, it's about 170 pages. Uh, if, you wanna, if you have your Bible, you can kind of flip through and see how many pages this all is. But a large section of the Pentateuch is God telling his people to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, these are uh, laws and regulations that govern almost every aspect of their lives, right? From what you can eat and drink to how you make restitution if your bull hurts someone or damages something. Uh, it explains uh, how you are perform all of the sacrifices, the various sacrifices that the people would need to do. Uh, it describes the tabernacle and how you would worship and how you would come to worship God. There are hundreds and hundreds of regulations, laws, and directions here in uh, what was called the law, the Pentateuch. Um, now, were the people, are people able to keep all these laws? Absolutely not, right? No, I see a couple of you shaking your heads. I'm glad. Uh, some of these are going to be rhetorical questions. If I see you all falling asleep, I might just randomly ask somebody a question to see if you're paying attention. Um, right, absolutely not, right? The, the people are not able to uh, observe all these laws. There's too many. The, really, the point of the law here uh, is that whether through intentional disobedience or forgetfulness, because really, who can remember all of these laws? Uh, the law demonstrates our shortcomings. We fall short, as Romans 3 tells us. No one is righteous before the law. Now, the God, God knew that the Israelites, when he gave these laws and commandments, uh, that they would not be able to keep them perfectly. Thus, as part of his covenant, God instituted particular ways uh, for the sins or the transgressions of the people to be atoned or covered. Uh, he did this through various sacrifices, animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, uh, various rituals that we'll see, washings. Uh, people had to come and wash. There'd be holy water, pure water. They would have to come and wash themselves to be clean. Uh, he established a particular location, the tabernacle, and then later the temple, where these sacrifices were to take place, uh, so that they, an unholy, uh, sinful people, could come and worship a holy, perfect God. And under this, under this covenant, the only way to be reconciled to God was through these sacrifices and services that the priests conducted on behalf of the people in the tabernacle, and then, as I mentioned later, in the, ten- the temple that Solomon built. And so now, kind of based on that structure, that understanding uh, of kind of what uh, this old covenant is, all of this is gone. 
the uh, author of Hebrews tells us. It's vanishing away. It is dissipating. So now that we have that, let's flip back over to Hebrews 9 now. And we'll look uh, deeper into uh, kind of why uh, some of his uh, just uh, explanation of uh, the scripture here. So uh, a brief outline, if you were going to take notes this morning, uh, I'll try to keep it simple for you. So the first section is going to be looking at this place of holiness, verses 2 through 5. Uh, we're going to be looking uh, next at some of the regulations for divine worship uh, that he mentions there in verses 6 and 7. In the last three verses, we're going to be looking at some specific faults or shortcomings or limitations of the old covenant. Uh, some of this this morning, um, because I don't know how much you all know, I'm going to be describing some of this, um, some of what the Old Testament was. Uh, so you have to bear with me. Um, I think if it was important for the apostle here in the scripture, it's important for us to cover this morning. So um, a lot of it's not going to be directly applicable to us, but it's going to help us to understand the context and the reasons for why this was very important, especially for the early church. So look with me there at verses 2 uh, through 5. I'll reread it here. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So uh, thank you, Chad. Chad's beat me to it. Uh, You see there uh, a quick diagram um, of what the tabernacle probably would have looked like. Um, I just find visuals very helpful. Um, So in Exodus, uh, God provides very detailed instructions to the people of Israel about how the tabernacle was to be constructed. Uh, the tabernacle itself, the outer walls were made of a tent, or uh, the tent was made of a cloth, a very special kind of cloth. Uh, it was designed so that it could be packed up and moved. Uh, animals would carry it. The Levites, the priests would carry this. Um, they carried it with them as they traveled to the promised land, and after they disobeyed God, they carried the tabernacle with them as they wandered in the wilderness uh, before they could enter the promised land. Once they were in the promised land, uh, the cloth tabernacle was used as the primary location for the sacrifices and the, ser- and the uh, services uh, for the priests. Uh, and then later, Solomon built the temple that was modeled after the tabernacle as kind of more of a permanent uh, house, uh, majestic house for the Lord. Now, in this tabernacle were several sections. You can see the outer courtyard and then the inner uh, tent there. Um, the uh, outer courtyard, the door, was uh, facing east. Uh, none of this outer courtyard, if you're looking in your uh, Hebrews, is referenced in Hebrews 9. The, the author just kind of assumes that everyone else knows because his focus is on the inner tent. But for context, I'm going to provide um, some a little broader here. But the, the door is facing east. Uh, so that's the part of the, there's in, in the courtyard, uh, there is the altar of burnt offering where the Israelites would have come and sacrificed animals uh, t- uh, as part of the uh, sacrifices that they would need to offer to cover their sins. And then there's a bronze basin or laver there in between the altar and the tent. Um, And this is where the priests would have come and washed themselves prior to entering the uh, holy place to perform uh, various duties. Um, The courtyard would have been open to pretty much all of the Israelites, so they would have been able to come in and perform those sacrifices. Um, And then if we move west, we go to the inner tent. Um, 
When you come to the inner tent, there are uh, two sections. Go ahead, Chad, for the next slide. Uh, there are two sections to uh, this holy tent. There's the first section there, which covered about two-thirds of it, uh, which was the holy place, and then inside would have been the most holy place. Um, inside, uh, the first section, as we see there uh, in verse 2, uh, he mentions a lampstand. Uh, there was a table uh, with the bread of presence on them, and then there was the altar of incense, which would have been kind of in front of uh, the curtain separating the two sections. The uh, tent for the tabernacle, the walls, uh, would have been fairly thick. It wasn't like a camping tent where light is able to come in that you might use uh, to camp up in the mountains, uh, so they needed light. Uh, so this lampstand was made of pure gold. It had seven lights that were fueled continuously by oil, um, and all of those instructions are in Exodus 27. Uh, the table there, uh, kind of on the far wall, uh, what is uh, a table that was overlaid with gold, and on it were 12 loaves of showbread, uh, what are called here the bread of presence, and there was one for each t- uh, tribe of the people of Israel. Now, the altar of incense you'll see there in uh, the holy place is not mentioned in verse 2 with the other two items, uh, but it is mentioned in verse 4 in relation to the, uh, to the relation to the holy of holies. So you can see there that the altar of incense is the closest piece of furniture to uh, the holy of holies. Um, I think one of, the, uh, one of the arguments that I find most compelling uh, for why the author kind of moves the altar of incense, if you will, um, is that the verb used here, which is having or to have, um, is not describing where the altar of incense is actually located, uh, but it is talking rather about where, uh, how the altar was uh, used or how, where it was associated. Uh, so we also see a similar use and description for the altar of incense in 1 Kings 6, where uh, the, the Solomon uh, building the uh, temple is described. Uh, so location is not what is, what in, is important to the apostle here, but rather how the altar of incense was used. So how was it used? I'm glad you asked. Uh, so given its proximity to the most holy place, the smoke and the aroma uh, that would have risen from this altar of incense would have drifted in to the most holy place, and it would have presented a sweet aroma. Uh, it would have presented a, a sweet aroma there to God uh, where he's dwelling in the holy of holies. Um, as well, once a year, uh, during the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come and take coals from the altar of incense. He would then enter the Holy of Holies, and the smoke from those burning coals would cover uh, where God was dwelling on the Ark of the Covenant with smoke. Um, and so the use of the altar of incense was uh, consistent and was essentially for the Holy of Holies, not the uh, first section, the holy place. Now, between the holy place and the most holy place, we see a big curtain. Uh, This was a big curtain or veil. Um, Every day, the priests would enter the first section, and they would perform a variety of different uh, duties and and, uh, services, which we'll see here in just a second. Uh, But this big curtain was there to separate the two. Uh, It was there to protect the priests who entered the holy place from God's holiness and his perfection uh, as he was dwelling in the most holy place. Now we see uh, there in verse 4, actually in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which is kind of back here in the back. Um, It's got the poles on it here in this picture. It probably would not have necessarily had the poles on it when it was actually in um, the tabernacle. Uh, But the Ark of the Covenant was the first piece of furniture uh, that God uh, provided instructions for. It was kind of the holiest uh, piece of furniture um, in the tabernacle. And then uh, we see here the apostle mentioning there are three items inside the Ark of the Covenant. There is the urn holding the manna. There's Aaron's staff that budded. 
and then the tablets of the covenant. Uh, the jar of manna would have reminded the Israelites of God's provision uh, as they were wandering uh, the wilderness. Um, Aaron's staff um, was a reminder of the priestly privilege that God had appointed the priests. Nobody could just be a priest. God had to appoint you. You had to be of the Levitical, of the Levitical uh, tribe and line. And the tablets of the covenant here would have been a copy of the Ten Commandments. Um, so I don't know, we don't know exactly what this would have looked like, whether they're little pieces of stone, whether it's a piece of paper, but the Ten Commandments were in uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of the covenant were two cherubim uh, that kind of had their wings uh, folded over, uh, covering the mercy seat. Uh, these cherubim were warrior angels. Uh, there's various descriptions of cherubim, like in Revelation. Uh, we see them with uh, multiple body parts, multiple animal parts, uh, parts of different animals, I to say, not animal parts, but uh, parts of different animals. Um, uh, but these would have been war angels. These are not uh, your fluffy little angels uh, that you might see on, on, Chris, on cards and things like that, right? These are warrior angels uh, that are guarding um, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And then in the middle of the top of the Ark of the Covenant would have been the mercy seat. And this is where God himself dwelled in the tabernacle. Now this was uh, all an earthly sanctuary that was built by hands. That is where God lived. God described and implemented, this is where I want to live. I want to live with you. And here he is. And no one could enter this tent except for the priests. And no one can enter the Holy of Holies except for the high priest. And we'll see that next. Uh, so he kind of described some of the tabernacle, its furniture, and now we're going to look at some of the services in the priests, uh, what the priests did there in verses 6 and 7. Let me reread that as well for us. Uh, those preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the section, second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So multiple times a day, the priests would go into the first section, the holy place, to ensure that the lights on the lampstand were continually burning. Uh, they would go in uh, and refresh the incense uh, in the altar of incense. Uh, every week on the Sabbath, they would go in, uh, they would replace the 12 loaves of bread with fresh loaves, and then they would eat the old loaves. Uh, this was part of the provision uh, for the Levite priests. Uh, all of these duties, this was something that was consistently cur- uh, done on a weekly, daily basis. Um, all these duties were consistent, but they were only conducted in the holy place. That is the first section uh, of the tabernacle. And then in verse 7, we see some of the highlights of what the high priest would have done. So the high priest was appointed by God. Uh, he was the, the uh, highest in authority uh, of the priests. Um, and so for the Day of Atonement, um, a lot of us probably are not super familiar with it. Now, the, the original audience, again, for the book of Hebrews would have been early Jewish Christians. They would have been intimately familiar with the Day of Atonement. So we don't see the author going into a lot of detail here. Um, but for everyone's benefit here this morning, I bet if I took a poll, <laughs> a lot of you probably wouldn't be able to describe the Day of Atonement. So in order to get the full context of everything that's going on here, let's recap some of what this Day of Atonement was that the uh, uh, author here is describing. So the Day of Atonement is described uh, largely in Leviticus 16. Uh, the Day of Atonement occurred once each year, and the purpose of it was to atone for all of the sins of the people of Israel. And it was a reminder that all of their daily, their weekly, and their monthly sacrifices 
were not sufficient to atone for their sins. Okay? So this was like the catch-all. All right? uh, they, the Israelites were performing consistent daily, weekly, monthly sacrifices. But there were certain sins, certain transgressions, unintentional sins, as we see here in verse 7, uh, that the people, uh, their sins were not being covered by these other sacrifices. And so once a year, God instituted this day of atonement that would cover all the rest of their sins. Uh, the high priest would get up, he would bathe, he would put on his holy garments, uh, he would then sacrifice a bull as a sin offering for his own sin and for the sin of his family. Uh, then he would have two goats brought to him. Uh, they would cast lots. One would be chosen for Jehovah, and one would be a, uh, chosen as the scapegoat. Um, the high priest would then sacrifice the goat uh, on behalf of the people's sins. Uh, and then the uh, scapegoat would uh, be uh, blessed, and the high priest would confess all of those unintentional sins, all those other sins on the goat. Uh, the goat would then be led out into the wilderness, and they would be let go. And this was to symbolize that all of the sins of the people were forgotten. They were atoned for. They were covered. Now, during the services conducted on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter this most holy place, this second section, <clears throat> three times uh, on the same day. Uh, the first time he would enter, he would enter, as I mentioned, with that censer of incense. He would take some of that burning coals out of the uh, altar of incense. He would enter the Holy of Holies, <clears throat> and he would allow the smoke to cover the Ark of the Covenant. This would help cover uh, God's holiness. He would protect the high priest from God's holiness. The second time he would enter... Uh, he would take some of the blood from the bull that he had first sacrificed, and he would sprinkle it around the mercy seat uh, and around the uh, most holy place. The third time he would enter, he would take some of the blood from that goat that had been sacrificed to atone for all the people's sins, and he would sprinkle it around the mercy seat where God dwelled, as well uh, to mark and to symbolize uh, God's atoning and covering of the sins of the people. Now, this was not necessarily a holiday or a day that the high priest really looked forward to uh, because each time that the, holy priest in, or the high priest entered the uh, most holy place, if he had not adequately fulfilled his duties or if he was unclean for any reason, he could be struck down and killed by God's holiness when he entered the holy place. Now, because the high priest was the only one who could enter the most holy place, in order to protect himself, he would wear little bells on the hems of his garment so that the priests outside could hear him as he was moving around. So if the bells stop moving, that means he's been struck down, right? <laughs> and uh, in order, because none of, the other high, uh, none of the other priests could enter the Holy of Holies, the high priest would wear a rope around his foot so that if he was struck down, the priest could drag him back out. This was serious business. This is not your regular run-of-the-mill kind of day, right? This is, this is serious business. God is uh, very, very serious about his holiness and about the holiness of the people. Now, the other Israelites on the Day of Atonement were to uh, mark and to observe the Day of uh, Atonement with solemnity and fasting. Uh, the uh, ESV translated to afflict yourself, um, which most likely means fasting. Uh, so you're, you're not to eat, other not to work, and anyone who violated the Day of Atonement or failed to observe the Day of Atonement could be struck down and killed themselves, as Leviticus 23 tells us. Now, uh, commentators will say, they're quick to point out, this was the only holy feast, this is the only holy day 
where this threat was made was for the Day of Atonement. God is serious about this atoning uh, opportunity to, uh, to observe and to uh, make the people holy. Uh, so this Day of Atonement, uh, as I mentioned, was not really a holiday. Um, it was a solemn event. It was potentially terrifying for the high priest to have to put his life on the line for the, for the people. Um, it was not like one of our worship services where we're gathering here and laughing and singing and, and joyfully worshiping God. This was a very serious. And why do we have that? Because today we are not under the old covenant. We are under the new covenant. Now, all of that to say is the author of Hebrews only highlights a couple of items in that long description I just gave of the Day of Atonement, right? Uh, so first, we see there in verse 7 that the high priest entered the most holy place once a year. Uh, secondly, we see that the high priest had to take blood with him into the Holy of Holies as blood was required uh, to atone for the sins. We see in Leviticus 17 during that description of, of why uh, sacrifices need to, uh, and why blood is necessary for the atonement. Uh, thirdly, we see there that the high priest had to sacrifice a bull for himself. He himself was a sinner. He needed to uh, first had to clean himself. And fourth, we see that the uh, sacrifice uh, here on the Day of Atonement covered the unintentional sins of the people. These were transgressions that were not made through an intentional act, but through forgetfulness of, of things required by the entire law. Uh, and each of these things are going to come up again. Uh, that's why these are important to highlight here for the author. So uh, we've, just, we've looked at the uh, tabernacle. We've looked at some of the, the details of the services and what the high priest and the, the priests did. Um, so what? <laughs> right? Uh, this is all stuff that happened two years ago, 2,000 years ago. Why is it relevant to us today? What does it all mean? How is it relevant? Well, uh, last week, Jason shared a number of ways that the new covenant uh, is better than the old covenant, uh, looking at the quotation in Hebrews 8 of Jeremiah 31. Um, in today's passage, we're going to see some of those themes rehashed, but just kind of from the opposite way around. Uh, as opposed to looking to see how the new covenant is superior, we're going to see how the author is highlighting some of the ways that the covenant is, or the old covenant, I should say, is inferior. Uh, in Hebrews 8, 11, one of the promises of the new covenant is that everyone would know God. Under the old covenant, we see the opposite. There, look there at verse 8. The people do not have full access to God. Uh, we look there in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, and uh, by the Holy Spirit here, uh, obviously the Holy Spirit is one person of the Trinity, so this is God himself that is indicating this is important. This is why I have established the Old Covenant. Uh, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So as I mentioned, only the high priest can enter the first section of the tabernacle. Uh, one man, the high priest, one day a year could enter the most holy place. For the average ordinary Israelite, you couldn't go in to any parts where God was present there in the tabernacle. So for the ordinary average Israelite, you would have no direct interaction with God at all. None. Everything was conducted via the priests, via the high priests, who were the designated mediators between God and the people. Thus, the Old Covenant was very exclusive. It was very limited into who could actually enter into God's presence. 
Now we see there uh, in verse 8 that the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places. Uh, you'll reference here that that term looks uh, identical in English uh, to verse 3, where he's talking about the most holy place. But I don't think that's really what the author is saying here. He's not saying that we as Christians in the new covenant now can go into the tabernacle, especially because the tabernacle is now outdated. It's obsolete. So why do I say that? Well, the word used for uh, holy, or I'm sorry, for way, uh, hodos, and the holy places, hagion, there in verse 8, are the exact same words that the apostle uses in Hebrews 10. And as we're going to read here in just a second, Hebrews 10 is not referring to the tabernacle. So if you will, if you've got your Bible, flip over to Hebrews 10, 19. And let's look here at how the apostle uses the exact same terms uh, in a different passage. Whenever possible, we try to define scripture with other scripture. So looking at verse 19, chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, what? The holy places. It's the exact same term. By the blood of Jesus. So we are now entering into these holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way. Same term. That he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, I think you would agree uh, that this passage here in Hebrews 10 is not talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about the very presence of Almighty God. When he says to draw near, he's used that exact same phrase earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews 4.16. Where are we to draw near? We are to draw near to the throne of God himself. By using these same terms here in chapter 9 as he uses in chapter 10, the author is here signifying that, yes, under the Old Covenant, uh, there was uh, no direct access to God for the people in the earthly tabernacle. But more importantly, there was no open access to God's presence in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms, which is where the New Covenant is now opening for us. Now, this lack of access seems like a pretty big deal, a pretty, pretty big shortcoming. So why did God institute this big, uh, big difference, right? If he's opening up for us in the new covenant, why did he have no access for the average person in the old covenant? Well, let's look at the beginning of verse 9, which was symbolic for the present age. This is the second limitation I want to point out here this morning, is that the old covenant was symbolic or was uh, a copy or a shadow, as chapter 8, verse 5 calls it, of broader, more spiritual, heavenly things. It was pointing to something. The word symbolic here in verse uh, 9 is where we get our word parable from. So it's a story. It's a physical thing or something that's illustrating or pointing to um, or relating to a deeper uh, heavenly spiritual meaning. Jesus used his parables Throughout the Gospels, what? He wasn't just telling a story to tell a story, right? He would tell a story, and the people would not understand, and the, and the uh, disciples would come to him, and be like, we don't understand what you're saying. We, this doesn't make sense to us. And then Jesus would have to describe the deeper spiritual meaning behind these parables. This is the exact same word that is used here for this term. So the, the old covenant is being used as a parable. It's a story. It's pointing to something that has bigger and spiritual meaning. 
Now, we could easily take an entire sermon, an entire multiple prize Sunday school classes, looking at all the different ways that the uh, different aspects of the Old Covenant, uh, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priestly services, all pointed to something that was better, uh, to God's ultimate plan for salvation through Christ. But we don't have a lot of time, so I'm only going to highlight a couple of ones that I think are uh, I'm just selected uh, here this morning. So if you remember uh, in, the, in the original picture of the tabernacle, there's a single door uh, into the tabernacle, the outer courtyard. There is a single door into the inner tent. Christ calls himself the door for his sheep in John 10.9. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14.6. The tabernacle is a shadow It's a copy. It's pointing to something. The altar in the basin in the outer courtyard uh, were reminiscent of Christ's work on this earth. So Christ in his sacrificial death is a picture of the altar. He is sacrificing. He's providing that forgiveness of sins. And the water which the priest cleansed themselves with, Christ is cleansing us with his blood. So the two uh, aspects of the outer courtyard of what Christ did on earth are mirrored in the tabernacle. We see this in uh, Hebrews 9. Uh, in the tabernacle, there's a light. There's a lampstand. Uh, the light is a picture not just of, of uh, God lighting our paths, um, but he's also a reference to uh, Christ as our light in John eight twelve, He is the light of the world. Christ, who is the word, is also the light to our paths in Psalm 119. Uh, the 12 loaves of bread signify God's provision for his people. He provides the nourishment and everything else that is needed for spiritual uh, as well as physical uh, sustenance and flourishing. What does Jesus call himself? The bread of life in John 6. The smoke from the altar of the incense that would drift into the most holy place where God was residing in the tabernacle um, signifies the prayers of the people coming before God. Uh, We see this in Revelation 8. This is one of the only instances, I shouldn't say, there's several instances where the tabernacle is actually referenced by John in heaven, uh, but this is one of them. Uh, The priest's continuous daily service uh, on behalf of God in the the, uh, holy place is a picture, as we've seen in Hebrews 7, of Christ, our better high priest, our intercessor, constantly praying for us and interceding for us before God. I don't want to steal too much of Tim's and Chuck's thunder over the next couple weeks, uh, but the sacrifices required for the sin offerings and the Day of Atonement foreshadowed Christ's perfect sacrifice that not just atones for sins, but wipes them clean forever. In place of the Day of Atonement, we will see that Christ himself is now our mercy seat. He is that propitiary sacrifice that forever appeases the wrath of God and covers and wipes out our sins. We'll see that in Hebrews 9 and 10. Uh, The tabernacle itself is a type of God's desire to live among us, as I mentioned. Christ, one person of the Holy Trinity, came to this earth. He dwelt among men. He lived among us. And Christ himself called himself, what? The temple. He said, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John 2, 19. Uh, For those of us who are redeemed here this morning that are covered by the blood of Christ, our bodies are now temples where the Holy Spirit living within us. 1 Corinthians 6. 
the glories of all the tabernacle, the glories of the temple, and all of its splendor and all its gold-plated furniture. I don't know about you, but I don't have any gold-plated furniture around, so I think I would probably notice it. But the, and all of the splendor and the glory of all this gold-plated furniture, the glory and the majesty of the tabernacle and later the temple is nothing compared to what heaven is going to be like. Hebrews 9, 11, and 24 directly contrasts the earthly sanctuary made with hands with a more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation. And he's referring to heaven there. Heaven is going to be greater than this tabernacle. This this earthly tabernacle is pointing to something that is bigger and better. And this is only scratching the surface, as I mentioned. So in sum, the tabernacle, the services of the priest, the various aspects of um, the, the old covenant here are pointing to Christ's glorious work of salvation. In every one of these examples, the old covenant was incomplete. It was pointing to a partial, or it had a partial picture, and it was pointing to something that was better. It was greater. It portrayed a small portion of this complete spiritual work that Christ had brought to perfect completion in his sacrifice. So the second limitation is that it's a shadow of things to come. This third shortcoming I want to see here this morning is referenced in uh, the latter half of verse 9. So let me read that here. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So uh, our third shortcoming is that the Old Covenant, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, are ineffective at perfecting the conscience, of cleaning the conscience. Now, under the Old Covenant, the gifts and the sacrifices of this Old Covenant had to be conducted over and over and over and over and over and over again. They had daily sacrifices. They had weekly sacrifices. They had monthly sacrifices. The Day of Atonement was carried out every single year. Why? Because these sacrifices that covered and atoned for their sins covered sins up to that point when the sacrifice was made. But they didn't cover any future sins. They didn't cover any future transgressions. If you did, a sacri- if you did your sacrifice, a half hour later you sinned, that sacrifice that you did a half hour ago does not cover that new sin. So you had to do another sacrifice the next day, and the next day, and the next day. I've seen multiple commentators try to estimate how many sacrifices were conducted under the Old Covenant. <laughs> Millions, millions of animals were sacrificed under this old covenant. Uh, there's uh, sometimes uh, later, maybe even around Christ's time, they've tried to figure out and calculate how many animals had to be brought into Jerusalem. They estimate that there were literally rivers of blood running out of the temple because there were so there are millions of people in Jerusalem coming. All of this, but none of this perfected the conscience because you had to do it again. And again, none of these sacrifices provided an eternal, permanent cleansing of one's conscience. Now, Hebrews 10.4 tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So this is important to note, right? The old covenant, these old covenant sacrifices didn't totally forget the sins. They didn't cover 
uh, permanently. They atoned or covered or appeased God's wrath for a, a period of time. They did it temporarily. These sacrifices were effective in ceremonial cleansing, but not from totally cleansing the guilty conscience. So here's a plot twist. The apostle in the uh, new covenant, in this new covenant, Christ is what? He's a perfect, unblemished sacrifice. He offered himself up once for all. As a single sacrifice, he obtained an eternal redemption for us. He forgave sins once and for all so that our conscience could be cleansed from dead works and so we could serve the living God, Hebrews 9. He will remember your sins no more. And we can sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Under the old covenant, there is no clean conscience. Fourth, the fourth limitation of the old covenant is that it was external, not internal. Look at me there, uh, with me at verse 10. But deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the day of reformation. So these sacrifices, they deal uh, only with external temporal items, right? We see there food, drink, washings, uh, regulations of the body. So these were things that uh, the people were required to do. If you touched a damn animal, you were unclean. Um, there's, there's, a, like, <laughs> there's a, tons of different ways that you could become unclean. Uh, if you ate something you weren't supposed to eat, if you touched something you didn't, weren't supposed to touch, if you did something you weren't supposed to do, if you were, uh, often people with diseases were unclean. There's all these external things that the law covered. But these were superficial. This didn't deal with the true nature of our hearts. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. First uh, Samuel 16. What comes out of a man is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, comes evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, inverse slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within. And they are what defile a person, Jesus says, Mark 7. Here's your plot twist. Christ's unblemished sacrifice secures an eternal redemption that changes the inside, the hearts and the minds of his people. This is not a temporary cleansing that affects just the external appearances, as we see in Hebrews 9. He says there in Hebrews 8, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write my laws on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So to sum it up, the Old Covenant is limited in four ways. We could probably break it down even more, but I want to highlight four. So first, there's no direct open access to Almighty God. It's only a symbol or a picture of heavenly spiritual realities. The sacrifices are ineffectual, you have to do them over and over and over and over and over again. It cannot bring true cleansing from your, for your conscience. And then fourthly, there's a focus on the external, not the internal. There's no heart change. You could keep doing these sacrifices over and over and over and over again, and you would be clean. But there's no true heart change in the person. In contrast, in the new covenant, we have direct 
open access to God through Christ's work on the cross. We see and live these heavenly spiritual realities that are true for us today. We have a clear conscience. We can have a clear conscience. We have a clear conscience. It's one, just a standing before God. We have a clear conscience. But also, we are still sinners now. We still struggle and wrestle with sin. We can have a clear conscience as we come and confess that sin before the Lord. We can have a clear conscience based on Christ's eternal, effectual sacrifice. And we are part of the new covenant that transforms our hearts and our minds. This is deeper. This is more of what the Lord is looking for. Now, knowing all of this now, would anybody like to go back to the old covenant? No hands? <laughs> now, this, this question might seem trite and obvious to us now, looking back, right? We're 2,000 years removed from this. Uh, but this was the question that the Jewish Christians, when this was written, were dealing with, right? They had been raised in this old covenant. These truths about the Reformation or the new order, as the apostle calls it there at verse 10, which is when the new covenant was established, uh, this would utterly transform their lives. Everything they had done, daily sacrifices, no more. The tabernacle, been replaced with a heavenly sanctuary. Priests, God has opened up the way, so the priests are no longer necessary. Through Christ as our mediator, we can go directly into God's presence. Brothers and sisters, are you basking? Are you dwelling? Are you rejoicing over these truths of this new covenant? Are you relying on Christ's perfect sacrifice for your complete forgiveness of sins and to take away your guilt? Or is your conscience constantly condemning you do you f- ever feel not worthy to come before God? Do you have any external rituals or other good works that you're relying on to make you feel worthy this morning? How often are you accessing the throne of God, either in prayer or through the word? Are your hearts and your minds being transformed? so that you can be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual knowledge and wisdom and understanding? Are you building a legalistic set of rules so that you can look good on the outside? But in your innermost being, you're lusting after carnal desires. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at some of these glorious truths of this new covenant. We are no longer under the old covenant. We are gloriously under this new covenant. I urge you to read ahead, to meditate, to dwell, to worship, to rejoice over these, this new covenant. The apostle here is drawing a sharp contrast because he wants to show you how inferior the old covenant was. Christ in his sovereignty instituted the old covenant so that he could gloriously bring glory to himself, that Christ could come and free us. He was bringing freedom. I want to leave you with a hymn from John Newton that I remembered uh, while I was preparing for this this morning. Approach my soul, the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. 
There humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. Thy promise is my only plea, with this I venture nigh. Thou callest burdened souls to thee, and such, O Lord, am I. Bowed down beneath a load of sin, by Satan sorely pressed. By war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place, that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face, and tell him thou hast died. O wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy glorious name. Let us pray. Ah, gracious Father, we thank you for your wisdom and your sovereignty, that through the establishment of the old covenant, you have been preparing your people, you've been preparing us from the foundation of the world for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. That by Christ's death and burial and resurrection, you have instituted a new covenant with your people that removes all of these earthly shadows and copies and figures for the glorious heavenly spiritual realities. We worship, we adore you, for you have provided a way for us to enter into your throne room today, right now. Lord, we lift up those this morning that are still trapped in this old covenant as they continue to await a Savior. Lord, we ask that you will open their eyes that they may see and understand that Christ is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. He is this fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Lord, may the truths of this new covenant that you have with us, your redeemed, be realized in our lives this morning and this week and the following weeks, that we may hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. Lord, help us to stir one another up to love and good works by these promises we have in Christ. Lord, we come before you, we praise you this morning. We pray all this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, our High Priest. Amen.